Welcome to episode 10 of the Internal Comms podcast with me, Katie McCauley. For this final podcast of season one, I travelled to Bath in the UK for the Institute of Internal Communications annual conference, IOIC Live. It was a sellout event attracting around 180 delegates for a day and a half of IC presentations, conversations and networking. Thanks to the Institute, I was able to interview two of this year's conference speakers, Martin Fitzpatrick and Matt Batten, to find out the inside story behind their presentations. Both are in-house practitioners working at the sharp end of IC. Martin is internal communications and engagement business partner at B&Q, the UK's leading home improvement and garden retailer. And at the time of recording, Matt was about to leave his position as employee engagement and organisational development advisor at the Royal College of Nursing to become director of communications and engagement at the church in Wales. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll probably notice a slightly different vibe in this episode. This is our first three-way conversation, and we began recording it around nine o'clock in the evening. In fact, I actually stole Martin and Matt away from dinner, drinks and networking on the Thursday night of the conference. So there's a rather relaxed and I think convivial tone to our discussion, which to be honest, I don't think is a bad thing, but I know you're going to let me know either way. Matt Batten shares the inside track on his presentation on mental health and well-being. This is a powerful case study showing the value of connecting good mental health initiatives to the strategic narrative of an organisation. I particularly liked hearing about Matt's culture vultures. That's the college's army of on-the-ground advocates and the work that's been done to better equip line managers to have more meaningful conversations with their teams about mental health. Martin Fitzpatrick spoke to delegates about a tranche of our workforce we all need to start thinking about more strategically, older workers. The UK's ageing population has some real ramifications for business. By 2020, there will be 700,000 fewer people aged between 16 and 49 in the UK, but 3.7 million more people aged between 50 and the state pension age. But as Martin explains, his work at B&Q to attract, retain and motivate older workers is not merely a reaction to demographic shifts, This retail chain can prove a very direct correlation between employing and supporting older workers and bottom line profit. And that's the holy grail, as we know, for IC. Listen out also for how older employees are taking the lead on Yammer to showcase the 2,000 new product lines B&Q launches across its 300 locations each year. This is resulting in some fabulous employee-generated content that Martin says his IC team of eight people simply couldn't produce on their own. But before we get cracking, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you to those listeners who have responded to the Internal Comms podcast survey. 
Your feedback is invaluable as we begin to plan season two. Now there is still time to have your say. A link to the survey is on the podcast page of our website, abcom.co.uk. That's A-B-C-O-M-M. And as an added incentive, I hope every UK entrant will be entered into a free prize draw to win AB's unique communications audit, ACID Test, which I'll conduct personally with AB's consultancy team. You're about to hear Matt talk about IC's role in connecting local initiatives to organisational strategy so that employees really do understand the deeper meaning behind the plethora of projects they see and hear about every day. Now, for more than 20 years, organisations have been using ACID Test to assess employees' strategic understanding at all levels of the organisation, with the aim of formulating a plan to drive greater alignment around business priorities, values and vision. So if you work in the UK, you'll be in with a chance of winning a free ACID Test audit for your entire comms function, both internal and external. But for now, let's crack on with episode 10. My first question is for Matt. And just in case you don't catch it, Matt is someone who happily describes himself as a complete and utter comms nerd. So Matt, you describe yourself on LinkedIn as a complete and utter internal comms nerd. Absolutely am. I completely (laughs) am. It's one of those subjects that really get me. I really love finding out about internal comms and people and what makes them tick. The perfect subject. It makes you the perfect guest for the show. (laughs) Now, I know you've got quite a big job that you're starting, well, it's at the beginning of June. Yeah, in a couple of weeks' time. So I've been at the Royal College of Nursing for 11 years doing organisational development. And my love affair of internal comms has prompted me to look outside of the college. And I'll now be Director of Comms and Engagement at the Diocese of Llandaff in the Church of Wales. I'm I'm very excited. I'm glad you said Llandaff. First. <laughs> <laughs> it's that double L. I think uh, the Welsh get so used to it. We can we can pronounce it. <laughs> Sounds like a really interesting role. I'm really thrilled, really excited about the it's gonna be really different to what I do um at the moment, but what an amazing opportunity. The new vision has been launched within the diocese and uh, my role is to engage people in a new way of understanding church community. That's a big challenge. It's a massive challenge. Yeah, yeah, exciting. Wow, fantastic. Thank you. And Martin, Mm. the first line of your LinkedIn bio says, there's nothing more important to a business than people. A line I loved immediately. I wonder if you can just expand on this a little bit and talk about your career. And I'm going to ask you, if I smile very nicely, that you're not going to miss the bit where you're a train driver. Okay, yes, I can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's start there. Uh, Yes, I was a train driver in a previous life. I've done many roles. Um, I've worked in sales. I managed Manchester Victoria Railway Station for a while, so that's quite interesting. You'll certainly learn a lot about what motivates people when they can't get home to their children because the train's been cancelled. Um, <laughs> so I did that for a while, and then I became a train driver. And uh, one of the most important things being a train driver taught me was that I don't quite enjoy being locked in a small box on my own for 10 hours a day, weirdly. And it's quite an odd existence, actually. So as a train driver, you kind of come in, 
get a bit of paper tells you where you're going to go. You get on your train, you drive around, you put the bit of paper back in the box and go home. And you can go, you know, a week at a time without really speaking to anybody that you work with within the organisation or even with a passenger or a customer. It really taught me a lot about that feeling of being disconnected. Mm. You know, train drivers are very well paid, but there was really no sense of purpose there for me, no sense of connection, no sense of something bigger than the job. And so I left and went to uni and studied economics, weirdly, <laughs> uh, in my 30s. And, and then that, I eventually kind of fell into internal comms. I did some sales work at Vodafone, then I did some commercial management, and then fell into internal comms with our business-to-business sales unit. And that was when it really opened my eyes to this line about people, the most important aspect of businesses. And Vodafone had some amazing products, some amazing services, and we did a whole bunch of campaigns where a product had been in market had performed okay and then had kind of stagnated. And we did some internal comms campaigns and saw like huge increases in the way that product was performing in the returns, in the pipeline. And the only difference was the way we engage people. The marketing didn't change, the product didn't change, but the way people thought about the product, the belief they had in the product, their understanding of where it fit into the portfolio and their role in making it successful was enough to drive multi-million pound increases in revenue. Wow. And you know that really brought home to me this idea of the customer and colleague value chain. You know, engaged employees give a better experience and that gives you better profitability and revenue. That is just a fact. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. I've seen it multiple times. I have loads of examples of it. And what a great opportunity to work in internal comms where you can make a difference to how people feel about work, about the performance of your workplace, about the business which you work in, and the vision and shape of that business in the future. There's no other role like it. Fantastic. Now, you're both speaking at this year's IOIC conference. And Matt, if I can turn to you first, Mm -hmm. your presentation is entitled Thriving at Work, Why Workplace Mental Health and Wellbeing Matters at the Royal College of Nursing. Mm -hmm. Now, my understanding is, from the limited reading that I've done on the website and so on, that this is a membership body. It has almost half a million mm-hmm. registered nurses, midwives, right. healthcare workers and so on. Could you share with us a little bit about the sort of the primary role and purpose of the organisation? Yes, yeah, so the Royal College of Nursing is as dual function. So we're a trade union, but we're also a professional body as well. So that's quite unique for our organisation. We are essentially the voice of nursing. So we champion nursing, we champion the nursing community, Community. We campaign on behalf of our members. We're a member-led organisation, so their voices are incredibly important to us. And at the very core of what we do is patient care. And that's exactly what we do. So the trade union function is looking after our nurses and their rights in the workplace. The professional side of it is because you have to be registered and you have to keep up your professional standards as well. Mm. So we provide that professional standards and we set the professional standard for nursing as well. Right. Your presentation actually starts, well, it sort of talks about a journey of sort of mental Mm. health and wellbeing support, which starts back in 2006, I believe, when you discovered, or the organisation discovered, that actually pride was incredibly high, but morale was not. Yeah, it's an odd one, isn't it? Because sometimes you think that if people feel incredibly proud about the organisation, that's going to link to how people feel or customer experience and, you know, all that kind of stuff. However, what we found was, because with the Royal College of Nursing, we have that mission of patient care, we have that mission of looking after nurses and who's not going to care about the NHS, who's not going to care about patients. So people connected to our mission, but before 2006, we didn't really care about our people as much, which seems a bit odd because we're a caring 
profession, we're caring organization. But as you'll see when uh, through the presentation I do is we were a very traditional organization. We come across as a very twin set and pearls organization. And it's not until probably the late 60s, 70s, where you start seeing some of our presidents start smiling in official photos. <laughs> so we had a legacy, you know, we're 103 years old. So we had a legacy of being quite traditional. And we didn't think about our people. We certainly didn't think about engagement. And then 2006 came and we had a complete new leadership team, a new chief exec who was running the business as a business. We never ever seen ourselves as a business, never seen ourselves really as a service provider. We were championing nurses and that's what we do. We get on with it. Very matron-like, you know, we just do our job. But the new leadership team came in with some very different ideas of how are we going to exist in another hundred years time. Oh. And the reason we're going to exist in another hundred years time is by looking after our people in the same way that we prioritise patient care. So that's where this came from. Did a staff survey to get, you know, the benchmark data. And just, that's where we discovered pride was high, but morale was low. People had been treated pretty poorly and we didn't think about them in the work that we did. It was get on and do the job. So this new leadership team came in and was so focused on people experience as a link to customer experience as a link to business success so exactly what you were saying earlier and that's where we started seeing the organization went from membership figures that were stagnating to our highest ever membership figures in the course of 11 12 years it's pretty amazing because when you think about it nursing in particular it is this vital necessary yeah. and must be at times incredibly rewarding job but yeah. at the same time what an amount of stress and I was just thinking sheer sadness that must come with that job at times Oh, totally. Well. I mean, if you think of the current situation, and we're campaigning for safe and effective staffing to be part of legislation, nurses are really taking their breaks. They don't have time to take breaks. The ratio of patients to nurses, there's just not enough nurses. People are leaving the profession. They're burnt out. Stress levels are very, very high. You don't go into nursing to make your millions. You no. go in there because it's something you care about. So mm. people know that, but we're a frontline service provider as well, supporting our members, which means they phone us up in some really dire straits, facing redundancies, or they've made a drug error themselves. And our job is to make sure they've had a fair deal mm. from this. You know, we're not there to save them if they've made an error, but we're mm. there to make sure they've had a fair say and the fair process. Yes. So our frontline staff deal with some very challenging situations. And when members are in those situations, they're presenting it to our frontline staff as well. So some very difficult situations that our staff find themselves in that impacts on their well-being. Mm. So we have to be mindful of how our staff are being impacted by the job that exactly, they're doing. Exactly, exactly. And, and not easy to replace either. I, I would assume that knowledge base is not something you pick up off the street. And so yeah. the engagement retention of that team, yeah. you get it right and that's excellent and people will stick around. But when you get it wrong, I guess you have a kind of waterfall cascade effect of the job's already tough and then yeah. people leave. And so for the people left yeah, behind, the job really. becomes tougher. Yeah, I mean, we've, you know, to know employment legislation takes a while to know, to build relationships with trusts 
takes a long time. So we have to look after our people to ensure that they're delivering a great service on behalf of our members and contributing to our success. But because it's the right thing to do as well. You know, yes. they're people as well. They have emotions as well. And pride in our organisation is incredibly high. So when things go badly or when things go wrong, it does affect them because they're so emotionally invested yes. in our members and in patient care. Now, you say very clearly in your presentation that the whole mental health and wellbeing agenda cannot be owned by IC. No. It's got to be owned by the business. So I was just really intrigued by the approach that you took to this. So I really believe that internal comms are not the owners of wellbeing because so many people are involved in looking after our people. HR need to have the right policies and the right practices in place and managers in particular need to be able to make decisions that are in the best interest of their people and feel that they have the freedom and the trust to make those decisions based on an individual need. Internal comms' job for me is to link all this back to strategy. Otherwise, well-being just becomes another initiative. You know, oh, we've done mindfulness, who hasn't? You know, oh, we've done, you know, walk to work, cycle to work. But what is the point of it being there for the Royal College of Nursing? So one of the examples I give is for our centenary year, you know, as a membership organisation, we don't have a lot of money to splash around. No. We've got to be very careful how we spend it. We did this walk called RCN Walk 100. And it came from wanting to link our heritage to a public health and well-being message. So our motto is Trademus Lampardus, we carry the torch. Uh-huh. So if you think of Florence Nightingale yes. with her lamp, that's our motto. So we came up with this idea of carrying a replica lamp from every office across the UK, every office in the UK, but that was about us. That was our heritage. That was our message. That was us carrying the lamp for another 100 years. So in everything that we do with our wellbeing programme, it's not just this one-off exercise it's about our mission so whether it's fundraising for rcn foundation which is our charity who support nurses in need means we've raised money for a nurse who may have been off work Mm -hmm. sick or got sacked and needs help but there's a story there and our internal comms team are the ones that link those activities Mm. to our absolute mission and values as an organisation. So that's what I mean when I say internal comms don't own well-being, but they have to be the ones that link it to strategy. It's a pretty frivolous activity otherwise. You're giving it context. You're giving it meaning. Yeah. Yeah. I think the well-being industry, and it is a bit of an industry, is is is. pretty saturated with various diets and all, you know, you walk into WH Smith's and there's the Lean in 15 and all these kind of books that are out there. (laughs) But why are you introducing it into your organisation? What is the benefit? Telling people that it boosts employee engagement means Nothing Nothing. to most people. Mm -hmm. Telling them that it improves customer experience. We know it, but it's not your motivation, probably. But your motivation is that one person that you've raised money for that has helped them get back on their feet or 
the fact that you're doing this walk to raise awareness because you want more people to join the RCN so that they can benefit in their job and patients can benefit. That's the hook for us. That's the hook. And it also sounds like you took very much a storytelling approach to that. We did, Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're fortunate to have that heritage. We're fortunate to have... 103 years of stories to tell and we're never short of stories in the RCM because there's so much out there in healthcare in the Mm. NHS in the independent sector of people who we've genuinely made a difference to nurses have a story to tell they don't get the recognition that they should is what we believe and I certainly believe that Mm. but our job is to harness those voices connected to the people experience And that's what motivates you to do your job. Mm. I'm not frontline, but I'm motivated every day to go into work because I know the wellbeing programme that I'm running is going to help those officers who've then got to go into a trust and maybe take a call from someone who's feeling suicidal. Mm. That's my job, is to help them be the very best they can be for our people, for our members. Talk to me a little bit about these health and wellbeing advocates. Yeah. Because I thought that was a very neat way of reaching out to the whole organisation. Yeah, so we've got about 900 people at the RCN and offices all across the UK. And again, linking this back to internal comms, I don't think it's internal comms' job to report on the ubiquitous cake bake fundraising sale, <laughs> let's be honest. We love, we love a nice slice in the RCN and cake is currency. However, I don't believe that internal comms should be the ones that are telling that story. So we have a network of wellbeing advocates who are essentially our culture vultures. They're the ones that organise the fundraising events. They've all been trained to Royal Society of public health level two in health improvement so if you have a health goal say it was to go to the gym more say it was to lose weight or to walk more and do your 10,000 steps our health and well-being advocates could be the one that help you with your goals so they've been trained to have those conversations about well-being they're the ones that will check in with you every couple of weeks to see how you're doing or simply they're the ones that put up the mental health awareness posters or will run mindfulness sessions because they've had training on mindfulness sessions. They're the ones that will organise the Macmillan cake bake. They're the ones that will organise the things we're not supposed to know about, like the 501 Club, where you're not allowed alcohol between nine and five and one minute past five. (laughs) Pop, they're celebrating um, the successes of that month. We're not supposed to know about that, but it absolutely goes on. So... It's hugely important to the success of our health and wellbeing programme that we have these advocates because they're the ones that tell the story of wellbeing in their local area. We have a health and wellbeing quarterly magazine. They're the ones that will source our people's stories because I don't think a fact sheet changes anyone's life. But somebody who's been affected by mental health and has sought help and has come from a dark place to somewhere where they are now thriving, that changes people's minds. That changes mindset and it changes people's lives. And people are more likely to reach out for help because a colleague has been through something similar. No fact sheet will ever touch hearts and minds that way. Again, it comes back to the story, doesn't it? It's all about our story. Yeah, totally. Our people have got a strong story to tell. They've Mm. had mental health problems. They've had cancer. I mean, I had testicular cancer 18 months ago and 
being in an organisation that genuinely cares about you made me feel that I was able to come back to work, do a good job, not be judged, and actually talk about, well, that was a pretty horrible Mm. 12 months of my life. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of stories out there. You know, we've had people talk in a series of it's okay not to be okay blogs on our intranet of coming back to work and having postnatal depression. Out of that story was set up a parenting network. So, you know, HR could have set a parenting network up, I'm sure. But when it comes from somebody who's had an experience, more people get involved in it. So for us, it means HR and IC can step back a little bit and trust our people who've got the experience and the story to run this and have a bigger impact than we ever could. It's a wonderful story because actually what it's a demonstration of is an organisation telling its story and what it's about from the inside Mm -hmm. out. And today that authenticity is so important. Why would I believe as a member you look after me when you don't look after your own people? Oh, absolutely true, which is why, you know, we're really proud to have our investors in People Gold accreditation and best companies because we can go into trusts and we can say, we're not just saying this because it's the right thing. We're doing it. People are feeling it and telling us that this is the experience. We can back up what we're saying. As I was saying about linking it all to our mission, we're on a campaign which is called Parity of Esteem. So making sure that mental health has the same value as physical health, because at the moment it doesn't at all. You know, physical health trumps mental health, you know, and it's always come second place in terms of service provision. So we have a campaign called Parity of Esteem. How can we, as the Royal College of Nursing, campaign externally for parity of esteem if we're not championing mental Mm. health and our people inside? We'd be laughed out of any kind of Mm. decision-making rooms. We couldn't Mm. do it. So we come from a genuine place of caring about our people because we're telling the public and we're telling healthcare professionals, that's what you need to do as well. In your presentation, you make a point about talking about the role of managers in this. It reminds me of that line that people say people don't leave their jobs, they leave their manager. Managers have such an important role to play in this, don't they? It's absolutely true though, isn't it? Because, you know, we spend most of our time in work and who's the one person that has an awful lot of sway on your time in work? It's your manager. And it's about relationships. Now, if you're having a bad day in work... At some point, you're going to need to talk to someone about it or you bottle it up and then it just makes it worse. So those conversations that you have with your manager are incredibly important. While they're not counsellors and we're never going to, you know, turn our 200 odd managers into counsellors, they should be the ones to set the tone in the office and in the workplace to say, it's all right to talk about mental health. It's all right if you're not having a great day. Let's see what we can do to help you. Are there any adjustments that need to be made? And a lot of it is about feeling comfortable to talk about mental health without feeling that if you say the wrong thing, you're going to send someone over the edge. Mm. You know, sometimes just listening to somebody and saying, right, okay, what are we going to do about it? Rather than oh, you're going to have to talk to somebody else about it. I mean, how cold would that be in a conversation if the black dog is barking on your shoulder and you just need to talk to someone, your manager should be the one or your colleague should be the one as well to be able to signpost you somewhere or to just listen to you. Managers play a massive role in setting the tone and we've invested a lot in supporting our managers to have that conversation 
through coaching skills for line managers, through mental health awareness training for our line managers. And something we did last year was a staff conference for our managers called Who Cares Wins, <laughs> which a uh, bit of a play on the SAS uh, theme there. But it was to do with the fact that when we were doing our best company's data and analysis, we recognised that care was a quality that seemed quite low in our management population from the feedback that our people gave. And our then CEO was like, well, I'm not having any of this because, you know, we're a caring organisation. So we need to focus on why is it that people feel our managers are not caring? So we went on a a bit of a a programme of talking about care and the language of of the power of language is hugely important when you talk to people and how you demonstrate you care. And so we had a staff conference. It culminated in this staff conference where we had a trans activist there talking about the impact of words. And we had a motivational speaker talking about how to approach a conversation and some very practical skills on just talking to someone and saying, how was your weekend? What was your evening like? Not just you didn't get that deadline or you didn't do this, you didn't do that. So care has become quite a theme for us. And it hasn't been as awkward as maybe you'd think it was talking about care in the workplace, you know. People generally get that this is about looking after each other during tough times. It sounds like you've made some policy changes as well. Mm. I mean, flexible working practices and so on. Yeah. So say seven years into our health and wellbeing programme, you always do your check-ins with your staff to see is there things that we're missing or things that we're not doing. And we discovered that our stats around well-being were kind of plateauing and slightly dropping as well. And we've done all the stuff that, you know, we thought was making the difference. So another round of focus groups to find out, OK, what, what aren't we doing? Do you know, it came down to something as really straightforward as I'd love to work from home a bit more. Mm. Can I just work a nine day fortnight? Mm. Can I work four days a week? What about split shifts? I work close to the office and we've got people in our contact centre. It works better for them if they can do split shifts. Yeah, why not? If it works for the service, why not? Mm -hmm. So we introduced flexible working, whole range of programmes. It would have to be a, a very rare occasion where we'd have to say no. Our managers have gone through training and we shout about flexible working all the time. I've got a nine day fortnight and I wouldn't change it for the world because what do I do on my day off? Nothing. (laughs) Absolutely not a jot. I read. I go to the gym in the morning, I come home and I read. I may do the washing up. I don't know. (laughs) It's my day off. (laughs) I haven't decided. But it makes a big difference because you come back feeling refreshed and you do feel like you're in control of your work time that work isn't in control of you yes so flexible working if there is one takeaway i would say that organizations can do to improve well-being flexible working make it happen if you can we have to invest in new tech because we didn't have the infrastructure for people to work at home and the bandwidth of skype and all that kind of stuff so we had to invest Mm. but it was absolutely worth it i mean People don't have to travel to London, to Birmingham for meetings. So we've cut our costs as well. Right. So there is a business element to this mm. as well. Mm. You cut your costs. You can recruit. So we've got a big headquarters in London. But flexible working and home working means we can recruit the best person, maybe in Edinburgh, the best person in Northern Ireland. So mm. 
for the business, it's helped us be a better organisation and a better business. Yeah, and it's, I totally echo that, actually. So we use Art Flexible Working in B&Q where possible. And obviously for store staff, it's, it's harder because you have to be in front of customers. So, But you can still take that flexible working ethos and start to think about how do you shape your jobs? How do you shape the yeah. roles? Do your people need to come in at... 7.30 and do a solid eight hours and go home? Or do they only need to work weekends? Or can you yeah. give them better notice about what their shift patterns will be? And I think there's a bit of a myth that actually flexible working is a thing for attracting millennials to the workplace. <laughs> and, it, and it is important for those guys, right? The research says it is important. But if you look at older workers or people with more experience or young parents, I've got a nine-month-old baby at home and I don't go into the office on Fridays. I do a 90-minute commute to work, 90 minutes home, big, long commute. Mm. And so being able to guarantee I will be home for bedtime one day a week is massively important to me. It makes a huge difference to me and being cute, very supportive. But more broadly, outside of the young parents, if you've got older people, People in your organisation, they're more likely to be carers. They're more likely to have things they need to do outside of work that become increasingly important and critical to them. And so the ability to shape job roles and be more flexible in your outlooks mm. so that you're meeting their needs as well, I think it's critical, become more critical as time goes by to businesses. And so if you can start to embrace that in different ways, it might not be full flexible work, you might be on a phase approach, mm. but it will definitely help businesses be more successful, recruit better people and retain them longer. Yeah, it is hugely important for recruitment and linked into uh, well-being as well mm. the more you think about it you more think why have organizations not done this earlier you mm. could attract more people into the workplace that are going to deliver great results yeah. mm. for your business it just makes sense and it's better for the environment as well right? oh yeah so totally yeah cars on the road yeah less miles traveled yeah. Yeah, all of that stuff and office space is expensive oh. particularly if you're based in london so yeah. you know you can minimize your office space minimize your electricity usage water usage just, you yeah. know the impacts for society generally around flexible work mm. and I think could be huge if we could just embrace it yeah. a, bit a bit more, more. A bit yeah. more. it just yes. means trusting your people if they're not in the office that doesn't mean they're not doing any work they're probably doing more work they're probably doing more work gossiping exactly Martin it's going to be hard to believe I think that any UK listener is not going to know being cute mm. but I am mindful we do have an international audience so can you just a little bit of a potted history about P&Q, some of the wow stats about P&Q. Yeah, so P&Q are the UK's leading home improvement company. So we've been around for 50 years in various guises. We are part of a wider organisation. So our parent company is a company called Kingfisher. Most people probably don't realise that Screwfix and P&Q are owned by the same company. So as we look like competitors, we're actually part of the same family. We just serve different customer bases. You know, Screwfix are very focused on the trade. And if you know, you go into a Screwfix, the experience is very efficient. You get what you want, get out the door, time is of the essence. You go into a B&Q, you're going to get much more care and attention, help with your project advice and support. We have 23,000 colleagues and 300 stores. Our southernmost store is in the Channel Islands and we stretch right to Scotland, Northern Ireland. So a very broad, big organisation, very dispersed workforce. We're really heavily into sustainability. We've been leading the way in sustainability for about 20, 30 years now. Started off back in the 80s. We were the first company in the UK to have a sustainable wood policy. Today, if you're going to B&Q and you want to trace back any of our wood products, even if that's a bit of dowling in your kitchen, we can tell you which forest that came from. We can guarantee that is our forest-friendly certified wood. Our paint is all water-based. We don't have any peat in our compost. 
course, we don't use neonicotinoids in our plants. You know, we have a huge, huge environmental heritage um, and we're really proud of that and our people are really proud of that. And then alongside that, we've been campaigning for change in society for a very long time, started with changes to Sunday working hours where B&Q led a lot of that change to bring more flexibility into how and where people can shop and work, right into some work we've been doing around building a more cross-generational workforce, more representative of the businesses that we work in. And then more recently, we started to partner with Shelter. It's a really great partnership. Our people are really proud of it. We're really proud of it. We've done some great work. We've raised over a million pounds for Shelter so far. And it's an organisation that really shares our values and understands the importance of people having a good home, a home Yes. that's safe and secure that works for their family that gives people a base you know the economic and social impact of not having a place that you can call home the impact that has on the lives of families on the lives of individuals is huge and so we're really fortunate that as a business our people can contribute to helping families to build good homes and we can partner with shelter for those who are not fortunate enough to be able to do it for themselves so our big organization amazing purpose i'm really proud to be part of it sounds amazing. I did notice the Shelter Connection on Twitter and I thought, ooh, that's very clever. That's yes. very, very clever. Yeah, it's great work. I have to say the Shelter guys are brilliant. They're really invested in the relationship. They spend a lot of time with us. You know, we've had people do marathons on behalf of Shelter. We do cake bakes, totally. Um, <laughs> cakes are universal. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you work in the, you know, in the public sector or in, uh, in retail. Everybody loves a cake. We do raffles. We do a whole bunch of stuff. We actually fund Shelter advisors in the community as well. So these people will go out and they'll teach people the skills for how to do home improvement. Because, you know, a lot of the time in people who have challenging economic backgrounds they can't afford to get tradespeople in to paint in their house to sort out their windows to stop the drafts coming in in the children's bedroom and a lot of the time they'll live in quite challenging housing conditions and so they know they want to fix the problem they don't know how and so by funding shelter advisors we can play our part in giving them the skills to create their own good home and to give their families a better life i love how connected that is to your organization exactly. and your mission doesn't That's, require any explanation, does no, it? No, it doesn't. That is just it's, brilliant. I know, yeah. it's clever. It's clever. I, I it saw it and I thought, like, oh, yes, someone, <laughs> yes. Brilliant, brilliant. Your presentation made me think of the phrase, it's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. Mm. Because we talk ad nauseum about millennials, yeah. which is a completely misleading woolly term now <laughs> that means someone who's young. Or um, me, I'm a millennial of nearly 40. I don't know, so. <laughs> 1981 is a long time ago. <laughs> So let's start with the numbers, because I mean, I kind of knew, of course, that the UK has an ageing population, but the stats in your presentation about the buying power of this older mm. generation is just incredible. Yeah, so absolutely. So you're right. If you, you know, go on LinkedIn any day of the week, you can't <laughs> scroll for more than three and a half seconds before you hit some type of video about attracting millennials to your workforce and how they will solve all of the world's ills if you can just give them purpose and direction. That's just true. They're they an increasingly important part of our workforce and they bring amazing stuff to the workplace. You'll probably be harder pushed to find any kind of research that looks at what do people, you know, 50 or above want from the workplace. We don't really talk about that stuff. Nobody's really doing any work on it. And yet, you know, I think we kind of assume that their needs now are the same as when they were in their 30s, but that is just not true. Life changes, their needs change, their outlook changes. And the same is true of customers in the UK. So as the population ages, the things they want from us as businesses changes. 
their life circumstances changing. And so some of the interesting stats, so in the next 10 years, the population in the UK over 65 will grow by about 40%. That's going to be around 17 million people over 65 who are predominantly going to be in reasonably good health, actually. In the UK, people who are over 50 last year spent £473 billion. Pounds. And that's a huge figure. 40% growth in that probably would be more for the over 50 that, but just, you know, conservatively a 40% growth gives us something like £660 billion of spending power available to that population in the next 10 years. Add to that another interesting fact, if you're under 30, around 30% of your household income will go purely on sunk costs, rent, gas, electric, you know, as businesses, we can't entice that spend. It is what it is. If you're over 60, it's less than 18%. So that's £660 billion. The majority of it is discretionary spend. Wow. You know, and yet when research is done into people of this demographic and we're asking them, what's your shopping experience like? 25% of them say that they receive worse service in restaurants or in retail estates purely based on their age. They are ignored, they're talked down to, they don't feel they get the same care and attention as younger people do. Yet they have more money to spend. They're more willing to spend it. They have more time and they are more discerning about where they will spend their money because they're not as time poor as younger people are. You know, they can take time to shop around and they do and they will. And they won't sit and stay with your brand if you don't give them the experience they want. So there is this kind of dual pressure on organisations. Your workforce will be ageing. The skills available within the workforce will start to sit with an older population. They will have different needs than they yes. used to have. Your customer demographic is going to change. Their expectation is changing. And yet we're spending all of our time, 90% of our time, focusing on what millennials want and what younger shoppers want. 50% of cosmetics are bought by people over 50. You know, And that's all cosmetics. 50% of cosmetics spend is by people over 50. But if you walk into a shop, what's the imagery? What's the layout? It's not aimed at that audience. It's not aimed at the people who are actually spending the money, which is just bizarre. You know, there is a need for us to start to think about the employee experiences and the customer experiences we're creating. Are they fit for everybody? Do they reach across the generations? Because people are not necessarily retiring at 65 now. There's a significant growth in second, third careers. Mm. And so we need to face into that. And those who do will be successful and those who don't will be left behind. Now, you have a story to tell us about Macclesfield, I believe. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, interestingly, B&Q have known about this stuff for a long time, long before I joined. Uh, I was still a, a wee young lad at the time. Um, but, you know, if you look at the UK generally, it's common knowledge that we don't build enough houses. And the houses that we have, the homes that we have, generally people stay in them longer because they're healthier for longer. And so the people who are our core audience, people who were doing home improvement back in the late 80s, house owners were becoming increasingly older. Yet we were a traditional retailer and like all retailers at the time, we're mostly full of young, cheap labour, manning the floor, manning the toes. So our people didn't match our customers. And more broadly within society, there was a growing concern around age discrimination. And, you know, if you were over 50, the odds of even getting an interview were low. The odds of if you did somehow sneak your CV through by not putting your age on, when you turned up to interview, the odds of getting a job were, you know, even lower still. And yet we knew that these people had great experience. 
they brought experience from decades of work. Or we could hire someone with no experience and train them. And so we did a bit of an experiment, which we wouldn't be able to do today because age discrimination laws cut both ways. But we staffed the store entirely with over 50s for a year to see what kind of results we would have. And so we chose Macclesfield as the trial store. We got a lot of column inches around that and it did some good stuff for our brand perception. But from a purely business perspective, the stats are amazing. So there's some myths around it. You know, if you employ all the workers, they don't really care about your business because they're only here for a bit of extra pocket money. If you employ all the workers, they're probably going to get sick, probably going to need time off. If you employ all the workers, they're probably not going to hang around for long. And yet within Macclesfield, we saw staff turnover was down 600%, so six times lower. Almost nobody left, actually. Shrinkage, so there's the stock we lose through theft or damage or whatever, that was down 58%. Absenteeism was down 40% over the year. And all of that led to profits up 20%. I mean... You can find a business that could overnight raise their profits 20%. I'm sure they'd bite your hand off now. You know, importantly, that was an interesting real-world experiment about two things. Can all the workers be good for your business? And does employee engagement equal improved profits? Well, I mean, there's some pretty <laughs> awesome stats, right? In a real-world environment, yes, they do. You know, yes, all the workers are great for your business. Yes, engagement will drive profitability for you. Now, we wouldn't roll that out across our business because actually what's important is uh, having a workforce that matches the demographics of the communities in which you work. So within the wider UK, not everybody is under 25, not everybody's over 50, not everybody is male, nor female, nor are they black, white, Asian or any other ethnic background you know we are a broad diverse rich country and so why wouldn't we want our employee base to be the same you know that richness that you get from true diversity brings better performance the Macclesfield store was an extreme kind of experiment to see what you could do but what that led to was decades of heritage within B&Q of being inclusive of create an environment where whether you're older or younger, whether you're a working parent, whether you're coming back to work, whether you have mobility challenges or any other challenge, we can create an environment where you can be successful with us. In turn, that's made us the most successful home improvement retailer in the UK. Fantastic. Have you had to adapt your internal communications approach for older workers as you've got more used to their mindset, etc., their needs, their preferences? Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. So, um... That's a great answer, uh, a very political answer. Know in the fact that what matters to your people, if you're a values-driven organisation and it's true to you, it will matter to everybody, whether they've been in the business for five minutes or 50 years, whether they are 50 or 25, what matters will matter to everyone. What we have had to think more closely about is the accessibility of our communications. Right. And so, you know, that's things like, could you access our content on a screen reader? If you have you know, vision impairment, does it work? Does it work well? Is it accessible? We subtitle all of our videos. We are very careful about the language that we use so it's inclusive. So a good example is when we start to talk recently about the apprenticeships levy, which is something that's big on most big businesses' uh, agenda at the minute. Mm. We were very careful that language didn't make it seem like this was a thing for young workers. Apprentices are not designed for people who are 21 to 25, although that seems to be how most businesses pitch them. We have 45 of our people who are over 50 doing, you know, one to two year apprenticeships right now to further progress their career and build their skill set. Mm. The only way we can drive that is if we're very careful about the language you use and we're inclusive and we're trying to avoid as much as possible some of that unconscious bias around the subjects. So you would dispel some of the myths that we have about older workers, that they're 
very late adopters of technology, mm. that they're just in it for the pin money, that yeah. they're not interested in learning new skills. That's yeah. not your experience. Not at all. And in real life, you know, we've got lots of examples where that is just you know, fundamentally not true. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff, you know, there's things like... I've heard businesses say, oh, well, we try to introduce Yammer, but our workforce is older. Like, I've spoken to colleagues at conferences, oh, we, we, we'd probably do something like Yammer, but we've got an older workforce and they're quite dispersed. They probably wouldn't use social. I mean, my mum uses social media, my gran uses social media. Now, my phone will ping at, like, midnight and my mum will send me some really weird meme that I'm not sure she actually really understands the meaning of. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, she uses it regularly. It's a communication method I use to stay in touch with family members, you know, all over the country. And so why we have this perception that when people move from their home life to the workplace, the reason they're not using our channels is because they don't get them. They're not using our channels for a plethora of reasons. It's not because they don't understand them. Yes, they're probably not, you know, all the workers are probably not using, you know, Instagram. They're probably not out there on Snapchat, but they definitely use things like Facebook, Twitter increasingly. Digital more broadly as a topic, I think there's a bit of a misnomer that Older people can't understand digital. They don't get it and it will be really hard for them. So we should either ignore them or B, mop them up at the end. You know, they, they <laughs> seem to be the two approaches. But I mean, if you think about it logically, what nonsense. Most of these workers went through the most significant shift uh, since the Industrial Revolution, the introduction of IT into the workplace from paper-based to electronic-based. They lived that entire journey. They have done more digital change in their careers than most of us will probably ever do again. The only more disruptive technology will probably be AI into the workplace. And so to say that they don't get digital is nonsense. They do, they get it, they've lived it, they've been through it. Now, some of that might have been painful. You might have to do some work to say this could be better or easier, but they do get it. More broadly, most organisations seem to want to launch digital advocacy programmes, which I totally support. Advocacy programmes are a great way to mobilise a workforce. But if your entire approach to digital is, let's get a load of graduates and get them to spread the word about how great digital is, you know, your older employees are probably less likely to engage in that, even though they're more than capable of doing so. So I think there's a piece of work to be done as our workforce generally ages over the next 10 years, thinking more closely about when we're building advocacy programmes how do we get a more representative sample of our employee base to form that advocacy mm. programme, including older workers? You also suggest in your presentation, I think, that older workers are contributing quite a lot to your user-generated content mm, through do, their yes. own kind of stories and skills and expertise, etc. That sounded yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. So, um, you know, we launched 2,000 products last year in b and 2,000 new products. Like, it's a wow. massive amount. We're at the tail end of a big transformation journey. And, you know, the comms team can't support individual pieces of video bite-sized learning for 2,000 products. It's some money we wouldn't do anything else with our time. We have a business to look after. Yet our people can, there's 23,000 of them, 23,000 people looking at, well, how could we share some information out 2,000 products? That's manageable. For the eight people in the commons team, unmanageable. And so our Yammer community is very vibrant in B&Q, um, very much used by our frontline teams quite regularly as a way to share information and get the job done, seek help from each other. And just quite organically, we started to find as new products were introduced, people within the stores 
just taking selfie videos on their phone saying, hey, here's a new range. Because we don't roll them out to all stores all at once, we'll take a phase approach to roll sets of products through the estate. Stores will be like, oh my God, we got this product first for a change. So I'm going to do this piece of video that says, here's this new product. Here's what it looks like. Look how it looks on the shelves. Customers are loving it. Here's how you use it, which is awesome. What was really interesting is it seemed to be our older colleagues that were most willing to do this. It wasn't full of, you know, 25-year-olds, 23-year-olds or people at university doing this user-generated selfie video. It was all the workers who'd been with us for quite some time, sometimes supervisors on departments, sometimes customer advisors, who were saying, ah, we used to have this product, and I remember when this product launched, and now we've got this other product, and it's so much better, and it does this, and it costs that, and, you know, that saves us tens of thousands of pounds in production costs. Our L&D team couldn't support that. That's amazing. Do they post those videos then on their own personal social media accounts or do they put it on the Predominantly on, on it goes onto well. Yammer yeah. uh, and they generally don't post it on their own social media accounts um, which is fine and actually we'd rather they post it on Yammer because what that allows us as a common team to do is move from the generators of content scripting videos getting agencies in setting up you know and suddenly we can become the curators of stories we can find this content and we can share it with senior leaders like, oh, you might want to have a comment on this or look at this isn't that cool and that starts to drive pickup of the video and the more the video gets picked up the more people start to share it the more people start to share it the more other people go I could do something like that in my store you know and it started in a small section of store before we knew it it was happening in our outdoor section it was happening people showing how to use a new range of barbecues that the people were talking about you know and there's a great one paint lids are hard to get off and if you're female working on our paint desk they quite often you break your nails trying to open a paint lid one of the stores invented a little tool like oh if you go to the guys in wood they can make this for you look it just pops a lid off great here's how you make it we would never have created that content in the conversation because we wouldn't have known that was an issue. But there was loads of examples like that and it's not all by younger workers. I'm just intrigued by this because I have a lot of colleagues and clients, friends who really struggle to get the Yammer channel off the ground. Mm. So is there a magic wand to Yammer or is it just... If there was, I'd be uh, very well off now running an ancient somewhere installing Yammer all over the country, probably working for Microsoft. No, I think it very much depends on your organisation, right? So I've introduced Yammer or I've been part of teams that have introduced Yammer at two organisations now, once at Vodafone and once at BQ. But there are some things you can do to give yourself a better chance, I think. So usually... Yammer comes as part of an Office 365 yes. implementation. I think this is where it falls down fundamentally. Usually Yammer is run by an IT team. And at some point in time, they come and tell the comms team, we're turning on Yammer next week. You might want to use it. Thanks. And then Yammer appears. And then hopefully the comms team can scramble in the last week, tell everybody Yammer's coming. And people go, ooh, don't know what that is. Sounds exciting. Let me check it. And they open up Yammer and it's nothing. It's maybe one channel, like all company nothing and one then somebody types hello and somebody else goes whoa hello and before you know it you've got three thousand comments of people just saying hello and then it goes very quiet yeah and then six weeks later yammer is dead you know it's the business equivalent of sitting down in front of a blank sheet of paper or you know if you imagine if you took a whole bunch of people out of your office you brought a ball you walked into an empty field and went there you go play the game and just walked off you know, they spend the first hour just looking at the ball going, does anyone know what game we're supposed to be playing? <laughs> and then when they figure out the game, how do we score? What's the pitch look? You know, all of that type of stuff. You can help your organisation. Go into Yammer first, build your advocacy groups, decide with your leadership teams, what do we actually want this platform to do? Is it just social for fun? Is it to drive business? Is it aimed at frontline staff or head office? You know, there's all these discussions. Have. Once you've got that, you can start to mark out the field. So one of the things we did was we created the types of groups we thought people would find most useful before we ever open it up. So there's an OB 
in queue. There's one for the outdoor teams, one for the decor teams, you know. We created some of these groups. Then we brought the digital agents in to start posting some content. We seeded some example content into those, and then we phased the rollouts. So we didn't just open it to everyone, blank sheet of paper. So when people started to come on, there was already content. They could see what types of stuff you might use Yammer for. They could see some interesting stuff on there. We started to move business processes across. So faceless mailboxes, like communications at BQ. Nope. Yammer community. If you need us, talk to us on there. You need support about a particular product, talk to the owner on Yammer. Suddenly it becomes part of your business process. Then it becomes a place where people go to do work. Then it becomes a place where people go to get help. Then you've got a conversation. And before you know it, you've got a vibrant Yammer community. But if your approach is like the IT teams deal with it, you won't have the Yammer community for very long. Thank you very much. I think a lot of people are going to find that incredibly useful, I have to say. You've got one phrase that I must pick up on because Mm. I think I understand it, but I want to check. You say, make use of the phenomenon of similar others. Mm. I love love, uh, the idea of similar others. I've used it at the organisation. We've actually already talked about it today. We've already talked about the idea that if you see somebody more like you doing a thing, you're more likely to get involved. So this idea that if I see somebody with a mental health issue who does the same type of job as me, in the same organisation as me, I'm more likely to feel that it's okay for me to talk about my own mental health issues. Similarly, you know, there were some really interesting experiments done, and I can never pronounce a chap's name, but Dan Airely, he wrote The Honest Truth about dishonesty and a whole bunch of other, uh, predictably, irrationally, some some great books. Uh, He's a behavioural economist, and he does some experiments about what makes people cheat. Why are they more likely to cheat? Without explaining the whole experiment and spoiling the book, they found that if somebody was wearing the jacket of the university that all of the rest of the people were in were wet from when they were taking a test, and that person was visibly seen to cheat and get away with it, everybody else would be more likely to cheat. Do the same experiment and put that person in the jacket of a competing university and they cheat, everybody else is less likely to cheat because that person's not like me. People like me don't do that's a person who is very unlike me doing a thing so if they're cheating i'm not cheating if a person like me is cheating well maybe it's all right you might just cheat a little bit you can take this as part of your internal comms and engagement activity actually and we talked about it in this idea of digital agents so if all of your digital agents are brand new straight out of college or university part of the apprenticeship scheme and they're talking about how they use digital and they use cloud storage and they use yammer If that's the majority of your colleague base, you're probably onto a winner. If that's the minority of your colleague base and the people watching that content or seeing that content think, but they're not really like me. I have, I'm older, I only work part-time, I have family, or any other reason why they can disassociate. Actually, not only are they not likely to follow their example, they're more likely to do the opposite. Mm. Uh, you know, so you have to be very careful. Behavioral economics is a very interesting subject about how people think and learn and act. And so it's really important for us as communicators, but when we're sharing examples of the behaviors we want in our organizations, then the people we use to share those examples need to be representative of our entire colleague base if you really want to drive change. Yeah, that makes absolute sense to me. Now, you've obviously both come to the conference to speak, but are there particular issues, topics you're also hoping might be discussed along the way, pressing issues that you've got to solve back at the ranch? Or I'm really intrigued by the whole cross-generation Stuff. So I'm really looking forward to delving into your your uh, yeah yeah <laughs> into your uh, session a little bit more. But I'm really also um, thinking a lot around change communication right. as well, particularly when you know everything goes well in an organisation and then very quickly something goes bad 
And we had an experience fairly recently where we had a big um, emergency general meeting and massive change happened across our organisation. And I would say for a couple of weeks, comms was chaotic. You know, internal comms, all kinds of comms was chaotic. And for me, that just thought, we're going to lose trust in our people. So I'm really intrigued to find out from people doing this conference how they manage chaotic change communications. Mm. Mm. Yeah, sounds good. Mm. Uh, And then for me, there's no one topic, really. So where I find the value of, you know, things like the IOIC generally, but particularly conferences of this type really valuable is... Those small things you didn't expect to hear, I start a small thought, you're like, oh, I could totally do that. I think some of the challenge of leading comms teams or being in comms teams um, generally is that the day job is so busy all of the time. The tendency is to, without even meaning, to fall back on what you know works. So here's a methodology I know works, and I did a thing like this, I'm going to change the message, just do it again because I have this mountain of stuff I just need to dig through. I think coming to conferences like this give you the opportunity to refill that armoury a little bit, and I might not need it now, I might not need it for six months, I might not even ever use some of the stuff I hear today or some of the conversations I have, but it will sit there and it will just give me opportunities without even knowing in my subconscious to prod me to do things differently, and I think that's where the real value is. I totally agree. I think it's that headspace, isn't that? You step back it's just such good practice isn't it yeah. to say to fill your head with some new ideas see what percolates through <laughs> absolutely oh, a great idea how do you guys stay current and relevant in your careers you've really had interesting diverse roles and you still do i mean how do you stay up to date for me i've got a mentor through the institute of internal comms who has been hugely beneficial in terms of me moving on in my career and I always used to think I wasn't somebody who was particularly strategic because in you know in internal comms everyone bangs on about you know oh got to be really strategic and in your stripes being strategic and I used to think I'm not strategic enough and you know, I talked to my mentor about it and she was like you actually you're really strategic you just <laughs> you just don't use the word enough to, to realize that you're doing it so the confidence that came through Having a mentor was fantastic. Being part of a membership organisation is hugely beneficial because you get to meet and network with a lot of people. And, you know, I'm a member of two internal comm memberships and I find it incredibly useful. And the hashtag internal comms on Twitter yep. is brilliant. Literally, the internal comms social media community is amazing. We like do you, like to share. You absolutely <laughs> love to share. I mean, I, when I said that I was speaking here, the amount of people who were DMing me with advice and, and support, and I was like, this is unbelievable. So I use social media a lot for keeping in contact and I'm a big advocate of CPD as well. So I'm hoovering up the textbooks, the articles, the networking and conferences like this are just amazing to learn new new skills. Brilliant, brilliant. Martin? (laughs) I would would echo much of that, actually. Whilst I don't do mentoring through the IOIC, I think it's a fundamental part of developing yourself. I've been really fortunate to have uh, some really amazing mentors and leaders that I've worked for over the years. And I stay in touch with all of them. Also, I've worked with some really talented communicators, whether it's at Vodafone or at B&Q, and they've all moved on to other roles now, big, broad roles. Many of the guys I worked with at Vodafone are now heads of 
elsewhere and they're all facing their own challenges and we're very well connected we stay in contact very often we'll do knowledge share sessions we'll you know pick up the phone to each other and go oh my god I've got this thing and it's all going wrong and I think everyone's going to find out I'm a horrible fraud and what do I do about this thing and you know and we'll share that advice and then do a bit of, of uh, listening and crying on each other's shoulders and I think that's really valuable is it staying into contact sharing your knowledge is really valuable and I think what I value most about the IC community is because often we're not at the sharp end of the commercial parts of our business and we are you know by almost by definition good at talking and good at listening people are great at sharing sharing what went well sharing what didn't go well which in business generally people are not good at I find the IC community very good at saying look I tried this thing it didn't work (laughs) totally don't totally don't waste your time doing that Um, which is as valuable as hearing all the great cases No, it sounds good. That brings me neatly on to those quick fire questions. So starting with you, Martin, because that's where we were. What's the best piece of careers advice you've ever been given? There's two equal. The first one, I was by a chap who used to work for me many years ago, actually, Vodafone, and he said I was getting very upset about a change programme that was going wrong. And he was like, Martin, does your boss care about this? I was like, no, they're not even listening and it's, it's the worst thing. He's like, look, you can never be more upset about something than your boss. And I was like, okay, that's very true. Yeah, that is very true. And the other one was when I very first started out in internal comms and my then manager, a lady called Eleanor Twaddle, who's amazing, had kind of said, look, the most important thing is when everybody else is losing their heads, stay calm, be the voice of reason, bring them back down, find a path to the solution. And then everything else around that will sort itself out. So that's really good advice. Very good advice. Don't add to the chaos. Absolutely. (laughs) There's enough of that. There's enough of that. Absolutely. (laughs) Matt, how about you? Oh, mine was a really good lesson of stop joking around, Matthew. (laughs) Because you're not going to be taken seriously if you're always making a joke in serious situations. It's so true. I think the more you move up in your career, you've got to be seen as that trusted advisor. Mm. And there's a time and a place for making jokes. And I think back... A couple of years ago, I was probably more clownish than I wished to have been. (laughs) So it was some good advice. It was harsh advice, but it was good. (laughs) So, Martin, what one book, journal, website, it really doesn't matter, should all communicators read? So I would go back to, so let me, I know you said one, I'm going to give you three, because pick one of them if you're listening. Um, But I would say either Predictably Irrational by Dan Early, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, or Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And so any of those three are all based around behavioural economics and what makes people tick. I think a lot of times I hear internal communicators get very frustrated that our amazingly detailed internal comms plan that we did, well, people are going to think this, they're going to feel that, they're going to do that, and here's all the things that will happen. You get to the end, you're like... Man, that was totally not why. Why are people behaving in this completely nonsense way? I give them all of the reasons to believe and they're still doing the opposite. So there's some great advice in all of those books that I think all internal communicators could leverage in how do we start to build comms plans and how do we drive change in our businesses, given that actually people are a bit mental most of the time. There's been so much interesting work done lately, hasn't there, in kind of why we do the things we do. Mm. And I those books are brilliant. So thank you very much for that. Yes, Matt, how about you? Oh, I'm going to go with Rachel Miller's All Things I See oh, website because um, when I was starting <laughs> off in internal comms and again, you know, when you're asked, can you write an, an internal comms plan? Yeah, 
Absolutely, I can. Uh, God, how do I do that? Um, and I mean, it's a free resource with so much information on there. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So it's my go-to place and still is my go-to place. It's if, if anyone is listening to this episode and hasn't yet checked out episode one, give that a go because Rachel is incredibly <laughs> generous and open and honest. Oh, absolutely. In first, yeah. It's a great website. Really it is, it. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So one of my favourite questions of all time, Martin, what would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? If I knew I couldn't fail, what would I do tomorrow? I would probably run around the UK ripping out layers of hierarchy and organisations <laughs> um, uh, and starting to build... That's much a new superhero. Yeah, it would be amazing. I'd wear my underpants on the outside and I'd just be like, you, you, you and you, you don't need to tell people what to do anymore. They already know the answer. What you should now do is make it easier for them to get it done. <laughs> but I think there's, there's some great work being done in some organisations around forming people around meaningful projects, you know, and then breaking them apart and forming new teams and giving people a more diverse portfolio of work. I think for too long we've stuck people in job roles with job titles and a particular hierarchy and asked them to go from a junior level to a senior level and and earn your stripes along the way. You know, if I could do anything, I would start to break that up. Um, Some of the most successful and most amazing leaders I've worked for have had very portfolio-type careers and bring rich, varied backgrounds. So uh, I think that model's had its day. We know that command control thing doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean... In certain industries where you've got health and safety issues and and there's things like that where, you know, command control to a degree is very, very necessary to keep people safe and well. But in general, in terms of how we motivate, guide, inspire, how we collect the wisdom of an organisation, all that hierarchy is really not helpful. No, it's not. It's not. And there's an odd, I was talking about it earlier at dinner, actually, there's an odd perception that um, for many of our leaders, they've spent the last 20, 30 years of their career getting to a point where I can make the decisions and I don't have to ask anybody else. And then you know, as both communications and, and more broadly as engagement professionals, what we're asking them to do is to give that right up. I know you've worked 30 years for it, but can we just democratise that a little bit? And what you can do is what the rest of the people who work for you tell you. It's like, what? No, I want to tell people what to do. Like, I've worked really hard for this. And so stripping that back is a challenge we have to kind of face into. But, you know, the reality is, yes, you've spent 20 years working, you've got 20 years of experience, but you have 400 people working for you and combined they have 400 years of experience. So which do you want to draw on? <laughs> it would be interesting, isn't it? If we moved up the hierarchy, we actually asked more questions rather than told Absolutely. people, you know, to do things. It would be quite interesting. Yeah, anyway, Matt. <laughs> oh, gosh, mine's really frivolous now. I'm a bit embarrassed. But um, I would write the script for the next Star Trek film. I'm a massive Star Trek fan. Oh, that's much cooler. Can I would... change my answer? <laughs> <laughs> it would be, that's what I would absolutely do. It would be a dream come true to write the next script for the Star Trek film. I should do it anyway. I know, I really should, shouldn't I? Live long and prosper. <laughs> I, I know a good filming company can help you film the one in your back room. If you really? Could. I'm on yeah, it. I've got the amazing. uniform and everything. I'm amazing. So, Martin, when you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who comes to mind? The world's best communicator, alive or dead? I, well, I think the typical answer is probably someone like Martin Luther King. I know that gets said a lot, and it becomes a bit of a cop out really but the reality is what an amazing man with an amazing background using little more than the power of speech to overcome just some phenomenal odds and it's hard to find there's a couple of people you know maybe Nelson Mandela or Gandhi or some of you know some of these big societal figures that have used pretty much the power of persuasion the power of language and the power of engaging others in your message to drive 
change. I, it's hard to think of anybody much, mm. much stronger. Strong answer. Matt, beat that. <laughs> God, I'm going to be more and more embarrassed now. I'm going to say Kenneth Williams. In oh. terms of storytelling, if yes. you go back and listen to him being interviewed on Parkinson, for example, and you listen to the way he tells a story, it's fantastic. I think he's a brilliant, brilliant communicator, gets overlooked in terms of, you know, this guy off the carry-on films. But you listen to him tell a story on a chat show back in the 70s and early 80s it's phenomenally good so there's a lot of good insight into storytelling now we are going to get a lot of millennials youtubing kenneth williams they absolutely Um, should but they should they They absolutely should he spoke spoke quickly he was immensely intelligent he must have been because his brain is working so fast to get these stories out yeah he knew how to make people laugh he knew how to tell a good story he he was an entertainer and that's what good storytelling is it's about entertaining people and you listen to him and you he's hilarious and he delivers the lines at the right timing Mm, as well it's such a brilliant storytelling technique yeah it's interesting as well that 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 concept you just sparked a thought really of of chat show hosts actually as communicators because i think you look at them and they're quite passive they're there to draw the stories out of their guests but what a great skill for a communicator to have that active listening where the very best chat show hosts help their guests tell the story they draw them in they draw them out with themselves they start to form connections and help to build that story so whilst it's not their story they help to make the story, Absolutely you know, true. and there's some great chat show hosts who are amazing at doing that, some very yeah. serious, some a bit more frivolous. But I think what they share in common is that ability to listen and to grab the nub of the yeah. conversation and, and enrich mm. it. Well, Parkinson was absolutely incredible Definitely. master at it, wasn't he? Yeah. So we're going to give you both a billboard for millions to see and you're able to put on that whatever you like. So, Martin, mm. what would you have on your billboard? Oh, probably something uh, quite frivolous, uh, like, uh, don't worry, nobody's going to die. <laughs> generally, that's generally how I live my professional life, like, let's not stress out about it, yeah. nobody's probably going to die. So. Yeah. I used to have a boss that said, darling, it's PR, not ER. Um, <laughs> but, uh, man, I couldn't say that for you, because often... No, 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 for some people in our yeah, profession, yeah, it, yes. it absolutely yeah, would be. Yeah. Uh, for me, my favourite quote, it would be, living well is the best revenge. Like, don't worry about what someone else is thinking about you. Live your best life. That's the best way to get back at someone or whatever. But living well is the best revenge. And it just settles you, I think. I love that quote. Love it. Love it. Martin and Matt, thank you so much for being on the Internal Comms podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed Evelyn a lot. Thank you. (laughs) So that's a wrap for episode 10 of the Internal Comms podcast. For the show notes to this episode, pop over to AB's website, abcom.co.uk, A-B-C-O-M-M. We've got those three great books mentioned by Martin and also, as mentioned by Matt, links to Rachel Miller's article on how to write an internal communication strategy, which I believe is one of the most sought-out pages of her All Things I See website. While you're there, do please complete the Internal Comms podcast survey and help us design season two, which will kick off later in the year. All UK participants will be entered into that free prize draw to win AB's unique communications audit acid test, which I'll conduct personally with AB's consultancy team. 
So, listeners, I bid you au revoir. Season two of the Internal Comms podcast will kick off in September 2019. However, if you can't wait till then, we are recording a small number of bonus episodes throughout the summer, including an interview with the managing director of a well-known high street chain of cafes, which until very recently was in a very public battle of survival. That comms in crisis episode is being recorded in front of an audience at AB Thinks Live in June. If you'd like to hear more about bonus content and indeed that event, I think there are some tickets still available, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter. I saw this and thought of you. You'll find the sign-up page on AB's website. Finally, all that remains is to say a very heartfelt thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you who have put the Internal Comms podcast on the map and who are inspiring us to be ever more ambitious with the show. So, until we meet later in the year, remember, it's what's inside that counts.